Well, our present series is called Bloom, Reflections on the Cycle of Life. This is an appropriate title and concept for a Lenten series. Lent's that season of the year when Christian folk focus on the passion of Christ, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. The sages in our history, both Jewish and Christian, have noted that this cycle of life that Jesus moved through, the cycle of living and then dying, being buried and ultimately revivified or resurrected. This is a cycle that is, is metaphysically a, a symbol for all of life, for all of us. All of us move through these phases of life and death and burial and resurrection. And the Christian church, if it is wise, reflects not just on those things in the life of Jesus as a historical event that has future implications for us, but we reflect on it in the now. We, we hear the Apostle Paul say that we are buried with Christ in baptism. We rise to walk in newness of life. And so there is this reflection that we do every year in the Lenten season on on this movement of life, this movement that includes not just life and fun and beauty and celebration, but also includes, includes death and burial and waiting. Um, Holy Week, Passion Week is a, is a substantial part of our faith. Paul said that it is good news that Christ not only lived, but that he died. How is it good news that Christ died? He said it was also good news that Christ was buried. What, what is the goodness of the burial of Jesus? What does it mean to be in a grave somewhere between a life that you knew and a life that you're going to have? What is that waiting space like? These are the things that we reflect on uh, concerning the, what we refer to as the Paschal Cycle. In, in our own Lenten journey this year, reflecting on this cycle of life, um, we've enlisted three questions to help us reflect on all of this. Every year in the Lenten season, we try to do something that is germane to that idea of the Paschal Cycle. And this year, I think we've, we've captured well the sense of the Paschal Cycle with these three questions. The first that we addressed last week, and all of them concern wellness of soul and wellness of psyche, wellness of spirit. The first question is, do you want to be well? And last week really was a wonderful time. It was really, I, I think, a beautiful time together that we spent reflecting on that question. Do you really want to be well? The second question in, in this little tripartite series uh, that we're gonna deal with today is, okay, settled, if, if you do indeed want to be well, then the next question is, do you, do you believe you can be well? It's, it's one thing to have a desire to be well, but do you actually think you can be well? Do you think that health and wholeness and full human vitality is yours? This thing that Jesus called abundant life. Do you really believe you can have it? And then the third question we'll address next week is assuming the first two, what part then do you actually play in getting well? And all three of these questions find inspiration in the pedagogy, the teaching style, the ministry of Jesus. It was Jesus who asked the guy laying at the pool, do you really want to be well? 
the question today, do you believe you can be well? That was often asked by Jesus. Whether it was to the blind men that came into his disciples' house when he just point blank asked them, do you actually believe that you'll be able to see? Do you believe I can do this for you? Do you believe that you have the capacity for it to be done in you? Uh, in Mark 9, there was the story of Jesus up on the transfigurative mountain with Moses and Elijah, this really powerful experience, and a few of his disciples were there with him, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle. And while that's happening, down at the base of the mountain, there's a guy who has a son that is terribly sick. And we don't really, 20 centuries doesn't translate well the nature of that sickness from that context to this one, but it was such a severe illness that the boy... He was so mentally and physically incapacitated that he would do things like throw himself into the fire. And whether it was a mental illness that caused the child to do this or it was some form of epilepsy and seizure, all of that has been speculated that would cast him unwittingly into the fire. We don't know. All we know it was a horrible dilemma. And so while Jesus is up on the mountain, his remaining disciples, the nine that didn't go up on the mountain, were approached by this fellow who had this sick child and the guy essentially said, I know that miracles come from this roving group of rabbis, this roving group of, of spiritual troubadours, would you please help my son? And they tried, they did the things that they saw Jesus do, they said the things, the incantations or whatever the rubric for healing was and it just didn't work. Bottom line is it didn't work. And then Jesus, about that time, comes off of the transfigurative mountain where he's seen Elijah and Moses, the voice of the Father spoken. It's a really profound experience. And Jesus comes straightway into human need. And as he comes to the man, the man is really forlorn. And the man says, would you please help me? I, I asked your disciples for help and they couldn't do much. And um, I think that's a constant refrain <laughs> of people outside of the Christian camp to Jesus. Um, I asked your disciples for help and they didn't do much, so I thought maybe I would ask you. And Jesus looked at the guy and simply said, do you believe that I can do this? And, and there's more to that than do you just believe in my power, but do you believe that I can do this for you? Do you believe to believe that your son can actually get better. And, and you know, uh, the reality is sometimes you live in pain so long that it just drains the faith out of the bottom of your feet. It's been so long, it's so, the, the condition has been so unremitting and relentless that it just, it beats it out of you. And, you know, the guy obviously believed that there was a possibility he wouldn't even have asked Jesus. And so it almost seems cruel at this point for Jesus to say, do you believe I can? Do you believe it could be done? You know, the guy could have said, well, why do you think I'm here asking? But the guy, the guy got it and the guy looked at Jesus and said, um, yes and no. I'm divided. On one hand, I do. On the other hand, I don't. I believed enough to come and be here, but a moment ago when your disciples couldn't pull it off, there was something inside of me that said, I knew it. 
Um, the way the old King James expresses it for the gentleman, the King James says that the guy looked at him and said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I think it's really a, a beautiful moment there because hearkening to the 12-step to the world, there's this, there's this constant refrain that even if you don't think you can get, get better, the question is, are you willing? And we say all the time in that world, just keep showing up. Even if you don't think you're getting better, just keep showing up. And something about showing up is a statement. I, I, I do actually believe that there's growth for me here. And, and as some say, you know, and if you can't be willing, just be willing to be willing, they say in that world. And the guy said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And the beauty of that is that Jesus didn't look at him and say, well, sorry, I can't work with that kind of conflicted spirit. You're going to have to go to the back of the line and re-up and work on things. And if you can ever get this faith really strong, then come back here and I might be able to do something for you. That's not what he did, Chris. He looked at him and, he, and Jesus essentially said what he says over and over. He looked at the guy and said, good enough. I, I can work with that. I can work with something shy of perfect faith because I don't even know what perfect faith is. But I can work with honest faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus said, we can do this. So Jesus often asks this question, do you, do you believe that you can actually be well? Last week, um, one of the therapists in our church, um, one of our counselors here in the church, Push, didn't push back on me, but offered this question to me. And I, I think it's really a substantial one. They've been thinking about it all week long. And they said, how, how can we really fully ask the question, do you want to be well? And how can we really offer as spiritual guides to people this question, do you believe you can be well? Unless we have at least some semblance of a definition, a mutually agreed upon definition that we mean by well. I mean, it's very fair for me to look out at a group of people and say, do you believe you can be well? It's very fair for you to look back and say, depends. What do you mean by well? If, if well means that, you know, I've, I've got to be Mother Teresa in the next three weeks, no, I, I really don't have that hope for myself. If, if well means that I'm going to be the next Eckhart Tolle or Richard Rohr, you know, in the next few months, no, I... I don't think that my growth curve is pacing at that level right now. The question is, what do we mean by well? Because it's really, it's really kind of insidiously dangerous for people to get on elevated stages and wear the nicest clothes that they have and clean up and appear as good as they can appear and, and idealize messages it's very simple. The insidious process there is, is that, that not only the, the people begin to buy into it, but the person on the stage begins to buy into it. It's very, very dangerous for all of us. And so the reality is I want to be very careful not to, and I think I do this. I think I'm disclosing enough. Nobody here, I don't think any of you are under any impressions that I'm all of that and more. But it's very I'm going to try to say this. It's very, it happens a lot that in churches we cast such a sterilized version of what can be 
that we render people hopeless in the everydayness of their life, that they could ever possibly be that. And I think Grace Point does as good at that as anybody to, to try to not do that. But, but I want to just talk for a little bit here about an agreed upon, understood description of what well means. What do I mean by, what do I mean by well? For me, well is more, let's see, how would I say this? Well for me, as I ask the question, is less positional and less about where you are on the holiness curve or the righteousness curve or the enlightenment curve or the, you know, the psychological health curve. Wellness for me is less about a position and it's more about a disposition. Does that make sense? Instead of comparing ourselves with, you know, people that are these, you know, these archetypes of holiness in our minds, and, and, and getting into that, again, insidious game of comparison, which just wrecks psychological health. And it besets all of us. It, it just does. We are always freighted with the heavy weight of comparing ourselves. And well to me is less about a position that we are on this XY chart of growth and, and more about a disposition. And by disposition, I mean attitude, a perspective, an approach that I have toward life. Whereas position speaks of this location or place that I've achieved and I've arrived at, disposition is more the Sermon on the Mount material where Jesus didn't say blessed are the enlightened and blessed are the accurate and blessed are the correct and blessed are those who have it all together. But Jesus said, I want to tell you who really fits into this idea of of wellness, this kingdom idea of wellness, those that are hungry, those that are thirsty, those that are meek, those who are humble. I believe there is a wellness of soul that a person can find that is best described not by achievement but by motive, by intent, by desire. So in that vein of thought, as I thought to myself in response to this therapist question, you know, what do you mean by well? What are you asking these people? Well, well, the first thing that I, I think really is included in, in my definition or understanding of wellness is just simply a willingness. A willingness to show up. Again, in the 12-step world, when, when the person in the meeting breaks down and says, I fell off the wagon again, and I and they beat themselves and self-loathing sets in. Because we're not supposed to do cross-talk, we, we, we reduce what we want to say, the encouragement we want to give in the meeting, we reduce it down to often there is heard a, a, a very quiet, gentle, but loving, keep coming back. Just keep coming back. I don't care how many times you've fallen off the wagon, listen to me, you're here today. Your heart may be broken, but you're open or you wouldn't be here. I, I think the first disposition of people who actually are well, and as Van Calhoun was saying to me this week, he said, you know, maybe a piece of this is we need to tell people instead of do you want to be well, the first thing we need to do is say, you know, you really are well. You're, you're more well than you think you are. 
You're more safe than you think you are. This is not going to come from some epiphanous enlightenment. It, it probably is more you awakening to the reality that's already churning and stirring inside of you, the Christ that's already in you, that's just waiting not for you to attain, but for you to release. There's probably, there's probably something to this very Eastern idea of accepting ourselves where we are with self-compassion. And in that wellness, you know, I, I don't want it to somehow shortchange and get us out of this press to be better. And yet, I'm not so sure that our hard press to be better has turned out too good for all of us religious folk. Maybe holiness and righteousness and enlightenment is less about swimming and paddling and outboard motors and more, maybe it's about, maybe it's about jet streams and currents. Maybe enlightenment and wellness is, is less about how hard we swim and more about finding the grain of the universe and once you find the current you don't really have to swim too hard. And maybe there is something to this idea of just telling people you're, you're, you're fighting a riptide. And maybe this riptide is trying to, maybe it's not trying to drown you. Maybe you need to roll on your back and let it take you out. And when the riptide ceases, maybe you can gently move over and swim back to shore. And maybe the riptide will have carried you to a place that you don't want to swim back to shore. There's a whole new world. But at the heart of wellness, I think, is just the willingness and the openness, the virtue of humility that says, I have room for growth, I have blind spots. Maybe at the heart of wellness, and I'm going to talk more about this in a moment, is just a simple vulnerability that cracks the door of my heart open to God and others and says, I'm here. With reservations, I believe but help my unbelief. And in spite of my unbelief, I'm here. I think willingness, openness, that virtue of humility, that measure of vulnerability, then leads to kind of a second disposition or experience in this thing called wellness, and that's awareness. Awareness. To, to be willing in itself is not enough. Because willingness, if, if it indeed is, is truly the virtue of willingness and openness, then at some point it should begin to yield awareness. And that's the thing that so many of us are, are afraid of. I remember years ago, I, I've mentioned this before, talking to a friend about just imploring him to do some deep work because of childhood wounds. And I'll never forget the eruption of tears when he looked at me, and I, he called his age out, I think he was 55, he said, I am 55, it is too late for me, I am not going down there. You know, that's those subterranean deaths where the, where the monsters lurk. And I, I want to tell you, those monsters that horrify you, if you take the dragon off, if you defang those monsters, generally they're a very wounded child that has created these shields, these layers of fiercity and ferociousness but I'll never I, that has stuck with me for years my friend looking at me saying I just 
am unwilling to harness this process and ride it all the way down to the depths where the monsters lurk. I'm too old and I don't want to see that now. I love, I love the Judeo-Christian idea of repentance, that we have morphed into some morbid, sad, imploring, begging, self-loathing experience. At the heart of the Judeo-Christian idea of repentance is, is simply the idea of a mind being changed. Awareness. Whether it's by epiphany or by process, just simple awareness. I love, I love when John says to us in 1 John that if we confess our sin, if we confess our unhealth, and I love the fact, and you miss this in the English, but I love the fact that the Greek word for confession is that we translate confession is homo legeo, H-O-M-O, same, prefix that means same, legeo, a verb that means to call. The noun cognate of that Greek word legeo is logos, or word. All right, now look at homo legeo. That word meant same word or to say the same thing. Homo if we homologeo our unhealth, if we say the same thing about our unhealth, the same thing as who? He said, if we homologeo with God. See, if we can look, I mean, why sit there with the practitioner? Why go to the therapist or the doctor only to argue with them about your condition? At some point, there has to be a yield. At some point, you have to look at the mechanic that you trust and say, I trust you on this, and I'm going to say, I'm going to homologo. I'm going to say the same thing about my car carburetor that you're saying. I'm going to say the same thing about my need for an SSRI or an antidepressant or therapy or whatever it is that you think that I need. At some point, you have to find somebody safe enough in their expertise that you homologo with them. And John's assuming that we think God has a view of our lives. And, and John said, really, what we want to do is see ourselves the way God does. That, that's exactly what Paul was saying to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7 and 10 when he said, it's godly sorrow that works repentance. I, I cannot tell you how many years I thought godly sorrow meant God was angry, God was mad, and I had to bend over an altar and implore God to forgive me for how dirty, rotten I was. And that's not what he's saying at all. Godly sorrow, and this goes all the way back to the Greek, godly, it's an adverb. It's the way, again, it's disposition. Godly sorrow. Smooth that out from its adverb form. Godly sorrow means sorrow like God has. So when God looks at my condition, the sorrow, the disposition of God, the way God feels about this, homologa, oh, I agree with God. I see it the way God does. I presuppose that this is a magical universe touched and created by a divine source. And I presuppose that if a person is willing to open themselves up to the heart of God and saying, I'm sure you see things that I don't see. And, and, and you don't do that in this ethereal, abstract, you know, 
way as much as maybe you do that just in community to open yourself up to the God that is present in the face of a 12-step group or a church or a loved one or a therapist and to say I am willing it presupposes that there will finally come a time if you are willing that you will come face to face with some realities and wellness is about how you handle the awareness of your own unwellness. Awareness has to be followed, I think. Again, none of this is getting to help how well you have to do, you know, in, in relationships or, or, or life necessarily, except just in, in this primal place of disposition. Awareness has to lead to acceptance. I cannot tell you how many times in my life that I have been hauntingly aware, naggingly aware of a character flaw or a fissure in my person and I could not bring myself to accept it. And, and, and a lot of time that leads to, you know, thou dost protest too much. Um, a, a lot of time, you know, it's just, it's, it's really just a, a miserable thing when you have that nagging sense that this is a reality but you're not willing to accept it and you have loved ones in your life who are pressing you on this issue and you get irate and you get loud and they say, wow, this really is interesting. Doesn't that just make you mad? Why are you, why are you so bothered by this? Thou dost protest too much. Acceptance. Repentance is a change of mind. It's not just to be aware. And I, I mentioned this last week, but I think it deserves to be plumbed a little bit more. The writer of Hebrews said that Esau, this Old Testament character Esau, was a profane man. And profanity did not consist of expletives, four-letter words, a debauched, immoral lifestyle. But profanity was defined this way. Esau was a profane man because he sought a place to repent and he couldn't find it. He sought a place to change his mind. Esau came face to face with the fact that for a bowl of porridge and a temporary immediate fix, Esau came face to face with the horror of addiction that to scratch a primal itch and to eat a bowl of porridge, he had forfeited and bartered away his birthright, which was a precious spiritual commodity. And, and the writer of Hebrews Lee doesn't say that his profanity was that moment of addiction where he gave up something eternal for something temporal. That wasn't his profanity. That's just as human as human can be. But his profanity was when his belly was full and the addictive cycle was satiated and he faced the consequences for himself and his family of flitting away this spiritual commodity of birthright. When everybody in his life said, my God, that needs to be rectified, that needs to be addressed, that needs to be faced head on, Esau pressured, no doubt, socially and circumstantially Esau could not find a way to rectify that in his heart. He sought a place to repent. He sought a place to change his mind. And he couldn't find it. 
whether it was stubbornness or insecurity, I don't know why sometime, you know, the, the, the toes and heels of our soul dig in so tightly to the, to the ground of our circumstances, uh, circumstances that we've made for ourselves. But there are times it wasn't forgiveness and rectification that he couldn't get. It was he couldn't find a way to accept it. He never could. Acceptance. Awareness is you bite into the fruit. God, the brilliance of our stories. You bite into the fruit. That's the, you know, the unhealth. And immediately your eyes are opened and there's a nakedness. There's this awareness that comes. And awareness doesn't always lead to acceptance. As a matter of fact, often we, we botch awareness because as soon as Eve recognized her nakedness, you remember what she did? She covered it. Think about all the fig leaves that we substitute the acceptance of our vulnerability, our proneness, our nakedness, our exposedness. Think about all of the fig leaves, all of the ego-driven fig leaves that we use to cover ourselves and to avoid acceptance. And, and even with, with herself, she could not, you know, it, it doesn't say that when Adam was coming, she covered herself. No, no, no. She ate the fruit and she couldn't even stand her nakedness herself. And then with Adam, there was a mutual covering. And, and the individual lack of acceptance led to this mutualized. Now, instead of naked and not ashamed, now they are simply merging their shame and merging these fig leaves of covering. And there are all these layers between people in their own soul and then relationally. And, and then to trumpet all, they hear God coming and the fig leaves weren't even enough. So they up the ante and they get down behind the bushes that the fig leaves come from. I mean, they're totally hiding. Aware? Absolutely. You think they're not aware? Sure, they're aware. Accepting? Absolutely not. There's no acceptance there. Why do we struggle so in this, in this life cycle? Why do we struggle so with willingness, awareness, and then ultimately acceptance? Well, I think there are reasons. And I, I, I think they're psychological, but I also think they're sociological. <laughs> sociological. I think a lot of us have good reasons. A lot of us have legitimate reasons. We have reinforced reasons why we don't do well with vulnerability. I, I think at the heart of acceptance is this thing called self-compassion. Uh, I was thinking this week about the difference between excuses and reasons. You know, excuses for unhealthy behavior and reasons for unhealthy behavior, constitutionally, a lot of time the excuse and the reason sound exactly the same. It's the same body of material. So the difference between an excuse and a reason really isn't positional, it's more dispositional. It's the tone. And, and I got to thinking, excuses are composed of self-delusion plus no ability to take responsibility. That's what an excuse is. 
This is my excuse for why I am the way I am. That is a mixture of self-delusion and a total self-defeating lack of power. I have no responsibility here because I can't. Self-delusion plus no responsibility is an excuse. That same body of material can become a reason, but a reason is driven by a mixture of self-compassion plus self-power. Self-compassion that says, yes, this should not have happened to me. Yes, I, uh, to some degree I have been a victim of circumstances, but self-compassion that does not yield and roll over into this narcissistic self-pity that looks incredibly humble, yet is the height of narcissism just to fall into the grave, pull the cover up over our head and say, there's nothing I can do about this. Leave me alone. Self-compassion says this should not have happened. Circumstances have led you here. You are behaving this way because of this combination of circumstances, but you do not have to. At the moment of awareness and repentance, there is an empowerment that comes that says this has happened to me, but if it continues to happen to me, I now am a co-conspirator in my own diminishment. There comes a point as the young woman in her late 30s said to me, years ago, I'll never forget, I didn't even know how to frame it at that time, on the heels of her fourth failed marriage, two sets of children she had lost greatly. She looked at me one day and she said, he, and she called out the family member who had hurt her and wounded her and damaged her so. She said, he did this to me, and she explained it again. But in the wake of her own devastating adulthood, she looked at me and she screamed, but he's been dead 20 years. And I, every day, am still letting him. There's that moment of self-compassion that does not fall into the grave of narcissistic irresponsibility, but it says, I can rise to walk in newness of life. There is hope for me. But that hope is driven first out of self-compassion. And it is that self-compassion that leads us to move into a taking of responsibility. This is why the brilliant Brene Brown has been telling us at the heart of healing, at the heart of a healing community, is a commitment to heal shame. And, and many people have said that Brene is saying that vulnerability heals shame. And, and I just want to say today, that is not what Brene Brown is saying. Vulnerability does not heal shame. How many of you have ever experienced a vulnerable moment where you bear your soul, put yourself on the line, and it is not received well? How many of you have ever walked into a church, walked into a family, walked into a therapist? How many of you have ever been in that moment where you finally get brave enough to put it all out there and say, okay, hoping against hope that somebody will say it's okay, we love you, you belong here, you can get better, only 
to experience the opposite. How many times can the little dog get hit before it begins to flinch? How many times can a child open vulnerably with the dance of a kindergarten child only to be laughed at or to told, told they're not going to? How many times can an elementary child, a middle school girl hear that they're not good enough until finally there comes a deblooming, a closing of soul, a flinching of soul? I would be so remiss to ask the question today, do you believe you can be well if I was not a committed part of a community that was doing our dead level best to say, bring your vulnerability here and we will not fail you. Bring your hurts here and we will not let you down. Vulnerability does not heal shame. Vulnerability received well. Vulnerability tended well. Vulnerability received and cared for with grace and love. This creates wellness. And God says, Adam, Eve, where are you? And Eve pokes her head out from behind the bush and says, we're here. And God says, what are you doing there? And she says, we're hiding. And God says, why are you hiding? And she says, because we're naked and insufficient and incomplete and not enough. And God looks at her, this is the healing of shame. God looks at her and says, who told you that? And his voice coaxes her out from behind the bush and there she stands. Oh God, how silly we look with all of these fig leaves we wear. The posing, <laughs> the posing, the posturing, Oh, and there's so many ways we do it. You know, one person's fig leaf is they're the life of the party. The other person's fig leaf is they're a wallflower. One person's fig leaf is they're a caregiver and they're always taking care of everybody, right? And the other person's fig leaf is they're a victim and they need everybody to care for them. It's insidious. It can, be, it can go either way, JW. There's all kinds of fig leaves. From the clothes we wear, the degrees we have. God. But to find a place outside of the bush, beyond the fig leaf, for you stand in the presence of one who says, keep coming back, it works if you work it. To stand in the presence of one who says, I'm glad you're here. I know you don't believe, but I see you're trying. And by the curve I grade on, that's really good. Stand in the presence of one who, when you say, hi, I'm Stan, and I am, they don't look at you and say, ugh, they look at you and say, hi, Stan. To stand in the presence of one, a community who handles your vulnerability well, 
and then to experience you want real community you want the healing of shame you want to really find a way to believe that you can be well put yourself only in community however small or large that can be put yourself only in community subject your vulnerability and your process of wellness only to those who will handle it lovingly and graciously begin to draw boundaries in your life do not subject the pearls of your brokenness do not subject Jesus said don't cast your pearls before swine you have no more precious gemstones than the heart the derivation the roots of your hurts and your pain don't cast those Jesus said before swine find a place find a church find a group find a therapist find a lover find a friend find someone who can coax you out from behind the bushes and instead of being impressed or buying your fig leaves find someone that with gentle hands oh god the pain of that when his hand moved toward her fig leaf covered body she must have winced and when that hand moved oh my god how much she sh must have winced but gently 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 he did not touch her where she was not supposed to be touched he's touched simply the fig leaves and he took them away find a place where in your most raw vulnerable nakedness your eyes catch gentle eyes and I didn't want to come today and say do you believe you can be well well it's really a matter of if you can have enough faith because I don't think that's the way faith is created by trying I think faith is created by community and I think that kind of faith a divine source works with because one day a group of friends went to a guy that had been paralyzed his whole life and they said hey there's a healer coming to town he's doing some incredible things I think he can help you and the guy looked at them and said do you know how many healers <laughs> and they said no this guy's different and he said they all are they all are and his friend said would you do it for us and the guy rolled over on his mat and said knock yourselves out I ain't got anything better to do today put yourself in a community of people who love you enough that when you don't even have the strength to get there they will carry you and when they can't get you in the front door they'll climb up on the roof and tote you up there and when you're literally self-effacing saying to them please stop just stop it's too much guys just take care of yourself go on victim pitied but they love you enough that they'll dig a hole in the roof and while Jesus is sitting there with everybody else they literally create a pulley system and lower you right down in front of him and you know it's really beautiful community and vulnerability received intended and stewarded well creates faith and belief in wellness 
because as they lowered the guy down, Jesus, as a picture of the divine, a picture of the way the universe and God works, Jesus, that beautiful expression of Christ consciousness, Jesus looks at the guy, and when he looks at the guy, the guy just rolls his eyes and says, I'm sorry. It wasn't my idea to bug you like this. And the Bible says that Jesus looked to the four friends, and you remember this? When he saw their faith, he looked at the guy and said, get up and walk. He didn't even expect the guy to have enough faith for himself. But he said, buddy, you're lucky. You got some people who believe for you. It's easy for me to believe for you. But sometimes I have a hard time believing for myself. Find yourself a group of people who believe in you and want you to keep coming back and are really glad you're here and know what you look like under the fig leaves. Can you say amen? amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for a community like this. Thank you, God, for a group of people who are committed to getting one another into the current, into the stream, before the healing waters. Thank you for a group of people who carry one another. And we do believe we can be well. We do believe that life can be lived without fig leaves. We are convincing one another of that. When we fail at that, forgive us and help us be better. May Grace Point be a community where vulnerability is tended with tender hands. Here's to belief. Now help our unbelief, sweet Christ, we pray. In that same name, amen. God bless you. Go. Next week, what part do I play in getting well? God bless you. Be good to one another.